Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. On Wednesday, Ohio's Republican-controlled House of Representatives voted to override Governor Mike DeWine's veto of controversial House Bill 68 that would ban all gender-affirming health care for minors and prohibit transgender athletes from playing girls' and women's sports in the state. Later this hour, political reporter Doug Petcash from our sister station, 10TV, will discuss that legislation and more with a couple of state senators. But first, I chat with the CEO of the Reeb Center in South Columbus about how they serve the community and a special event they're holding in the coming week. Nationwide Children's Hospital just introduced a state-of-the-art facility for pediatric cancer treatment. We'll learn more about that from one of the hospital's cancer specialists. And there's a major figure skating competition coming to the capital city. Jesse Giorzi from the Columbus Sports Commission will tell us more about that and a unique collaboration between U.S. figure skating and the Columbus Metropolitan Library. First up on Columbus Perspective, on the south side of Columbus, there is a building where a very diverse array of partners come together to help serve the neighborhood with the goal of meeting every need in one convenient place. That sounds like a really good idea. We're joined today by Allie Zoller. She is CEO of the Reeb Center. Hi, Allie. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. It's exciting to talk to you and to learn more about this fantastic place. Tell me about the Reeb Center. How did this all happen and and what exactly goes on there? Yeah, so um, the Reeb Center started... Um, because there was such a high need on the south side of Columbus. Um, The south side of Columbus is one of the city's priority neighborhoods and has been for a while. Um, It once was a very big manufacturing side of town where many families were blue-collar workers, working at Buckeye Steel, working at the glass company, and other factory jobs. Um, And when those businesses closed or relocated, um, it really made a ripple effect in the employment opportunities. And so at the time, uh, Mayor, former Mayor Coleman um, was doing a neighborhood tour and realized that something had to be done. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, the city acquired the building, a 67,000 square foot old elementary school. Um, and the idea kind of came about that we need to have a building with social service agencies um, and create a one-stop shop. And so that is what we did. And today we house as the REAP Center, uh, 10 different nonprofits that provide all different services. And then the REAP Center team itself provides the navigation. So we meet each neighbor at the front door where they are, whether it's an individual or family, and sort of direct them through the resources and help them. We have a social worker on our team who um, has case management, and we kind of guide them through their journey through the services that we host. Where exactly on the south side um, is, is the center located? Yeah, the Reap Center is located on the south side of Columbus between High Street, uh, South High Street, and Parsons Avenue. Um, And it is just about two miles south of Nationwide Children's Hospital. Sounds like the perfect location for all that you do. And what you've described to me, I feel probably is is not a delicate or, or graceful way to describe, but it's kind of a shopping mall for all of the services residents need. Yeah, and that was actually some of the feedback that we had received when we were kind of um, going through this idea of what could be was uh, a lot of our neighbors um, who live in the city of Columbus who experience poverty, uh, one of the biggest barriers is transportation. Um, And so the lack of transportation 
the frustration of having to um, go to several different areas of the city to receive those services, to receive support um, is very frustrating. And so that's where that idea of the, the one-stop shop came about of let's try to service these neighbors who are in such high need um, in their neighborhood in one locations to kind of try to um, reduce some of those barriers so that we can meet these neighbors truly where they are in any situation. Now, this coming Wednesday, you have a really special event coming up. It's called Rooted in Reeb. And um, Allie, I'll let you tell us what attendees can expect. I understand this is the first time you've ever done this type of event. Yeah, we are so excited to host this first time event. Um, You know, we're holding this event uh, because we are a very different organization than we were originally designed to be. Um, The original idea is that we would just be a building and the organizations would um, kind of co-locate here and work together and and all would be well. And um, while that idea is great, um, we weren't really sure what to expect. There was no you know, expectation to have REAB staff. We were not going to have direct services. And, um, you know, now we have 11 staff ranging from le- our leadership team to a social worker team to hiring our neighbors on our janitorial team. And this event is really to update a lot of our original donors Um, that our mission and vision is still the same and we're still doing the great work. Um, But we really just want to formally thank all of our gracious donors who have supported us over the last eight years and show everyone how far we've come um, and also give a little bit of idea of what the future has to hold for the Reeb Center. Allie Zoller is CEO of the Reeb Center. It's a former elementary school on the south side of Columbus where they have created a one-stop shop for residents to access social services and resources. The event this Wednesday that we're talking about, Rooted in Reeb, this Wednesday evening, the 17th, from 5.30 to 8 p.m. at the Reeb Center. Is that open to anyone? Can anyone buy tickets for that? Yes, absolutely. Anyone can attend. Um, You can find that on our social media, on our website, and you can also look it up on Eventbrite as well. ReebCenter.org is their website, and it's easy to find all of that information. I understand you'll have some special guests and honorees at this event on Wednesday, right? Absolutely, yeah. So as I mentioned, um, former Mayor Coleman was a huge advocate of starting the Reeb Center, and so we are so excited to honor him um, Wednesday night, um, as well as our host committee, which includes uh, some of our other founders, um, including Jane Abel, uh, Tanny Crane and Pat Kelly. Um, and then we also have two really special donors who um, are actually from Columbus who do um, not live here currently, but are actually moving back soon. Um, Carrie and Evan White, um, who have uh, graciously supported this event and have been wonderful donors to us at Reeb. The Reeb Center sounds like it is a vital and important resource for residents on the south side of Columbus, and we're so glad that it exists. Ali Zoller, CEO of the Reeb Center, is there anything else that you wanted to add before we finish up today? I would, you know, if if you're not able to attend the event, if you've never been to Reeb, please reach out to us. We are um, always in need of support, whether that is um, monetary donations, um, clothing donations, um, toiletry items, um, you know, volunteering your time, and really just getting the word out. We are um, really hopeful that we can move in 2024 um, as we are serving the highest number of clients we ever have. Um, and the needs are ranging um, from, you know, people who are living on the land needing shoes and socks to people who are needing interview clothes. So 
we have a really high need and we just need people to continue to support those who um, are less fortunate. And uh, we are here for our neighbors and uh, city of Columbus. And um, so please join us, come take a tour, come visit us, come grab lunch. Um, we are open Monday through Friday um, from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, and we would love to, to welcome you into our space. The need is there, and they have the help to offer the Reeb Center at reebcenter.org online or on the south side of Columbus. What an amazing resource in our community, and we wish you all the best, Allie. Thank you so much, Kate. I appreciate it. Every 40 seconds, a child is reported missing. That's 2,000 children every single day. It's a heart-wrenching reality that we can no longer ignore. Find the Children is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping find missing kids. You can be a part of their mission by donating your unwanted vehicle, running or not. Call 1-800-294-0222. We guarantee that you will receive the maximum tax deduction. We provide fast, free pickup with 24-hour response. Call 1-800-294-0222. Find the Children provides crucial resources to help find missing children and educational materials to teach kids how to recognize and avoid predators. Our recovery programs have a proven track record of reuniting kids with their families. It's time to act. Donate your unwanted or unused car. Help us build a world where every child is safe. Pick up the phone and call 1-800-294-0222. Together, we can bring these kids home safely. This advertisement was paid for in partnership with Cars R Us and Find the Children. Thinking of buying a home? The Ohio Housing Finance Agency can help. We have programs designed to help make home ownership part of your future. The Ohio Housing Finance Agency's Ohio Heroes, Grants for Grads, and Your Choice Down Payment Assistance programs are all designed to help make purchasing a home affordable. To learn more, visit myohiohome.org. Sponsored by the Ohio Housing Finance Agency, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the fan. I'm Kate Burdett. Nationwide Children's Hospital is currently celebrating the opening of a pretty important place. It's a $100 million, 55,000 square foot proton therapy center, and it's the first facility of its kind in central Ohio to offer this very targeted form of radiation therapy for the treatment of complex tumors that can't be removed through surgery. Obviously, with a description like that, it's not hard to understand why this is important for us to have in our community, but we're joined by Dr. Tim Kripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital to give us some more insight into this great development. Hi, Dr. Kripe. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here, Kate. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this type of therapy. It sounds very technical, very complicated, but obviously also very beneficial. It is very technical and very complicated. The machine that generates this beam weighs 90 tons and has very, very advanced physics. So it's really awesome to look at and to comprehend. Uh, And it is very, very important for our patients. As you may know, radiation therapy is still widely used for cancer therapy. It's very uh, a critical part of the treatment that we give patients to cure their cancers. And unfortunately, especially for children, who get cancer and then get radiation, the normal kinds of radiation that have been available to us previously cause a lot of side effects. The radiation can pass through 
not just the tumor, but hit the normal tissues around the tumor as well. But what's great about this new proton therapy is you can map it to the tumor volume, to the to the complex shape of the cancer, and avoid hitting most of the normal tissues around it. That that becomes really important when there's critical tissues around that, like for for tumors that are in the brain, especially in a growing child. And that kind of leads to my next question. Are there particular types of cancer that are more easily or more effectively treated? Or is this pretty much kind of a crapshoot when when one receives a cancer diagnosis, whether or not they are going to have an operable tumor? Yeah, so it, it depends on the cancer type as well. Some cancers we know actually do not respond very well to radiation. They have a intrinsic resistance to radiation. And other other kinds of cancers like leukemia are so widespread that you can't really use a focal uh, or localized therapy like radiation for them, except in specific places. There are exceptions to, to what I'm saying. But it's, so it's about the cancer type. Is it one that's responsive to radiation? And then is the location uh, one that either can't be removed or where the conventional radiation would cause uh, too much damage. So there are some variabilities from patient to patient, but by and large, most patients who can be treated with radiation uh, in general could also be treated and maybe should also be treated with this new proton type of radiation. Dr. Timothy Kripe is the chief of the Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplantation at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, And he's sharing with us the news of Central Ohio's first proton therapy center. This is for treatment of not just children, but also adults. Is that correct? That is correct. Many adults also have to get radiation as part of their therapy, and it can avoid side effects in adults as well. As you may know, radiation can cause tissue damage. It can cause uh, redness burning of the skin as the beam goes in, and it can do that the same thing to internal organs. So if there are adult patients who would benefit from this kind of radiation where you avoid the surrounding tissues, perhaps a tumor near an esophagus and you want to avoid burning as it were the esophagus or or for patients with brain tumors as well in adults. Uh, we are So we're excited about it for all patients in Central Ohio. We're particularly excited about it for the pediatric patients because they they're they're still developing. They're still developing their brains, their other organs, and and the consequences of radiation can be long-standing for decades. So we want our the kids to live, you know, 60, 70, 80 more years after their treatment. And so we don't want them to run into really long-term side effects if we can help it. And Dr. Kripe, I would imagine, as is often the case, not only um, is the treatment potential so great in this situation, but there's also potential for some pretty valuable research to be conducted as well. That's right. This is a, a high-tech facility, as it were, and um, we're going to be doing uh, several clinical trials as well, we hope, in the near future. One of them that we're most excited about is a therapy called flash therapy. The particular machine that was installed in this building is the most advanced in the world of its type, and it's capable of well delivering what we call flash therapy. That means instead of giving the therapy in little drips and dribbles as most radiation is given. It's given once a day, every day for uh, usually up to about six weeks uh, because the energy uh, in the conventional radiation that you need to give to the tumor can't be given 
the machine just can't give it that quickly. So it, it's given in little little drips and dribbles. But with this machine, we can get that entire six weeks worth of energy in under a second. And so it has the potential to really transform patient care for radiation. Now, that's something that's experimental. Uh, it's looking good in, in studies of cancers in animals, but uh, we'll be hopefully launching clinical trials in the future to see if that works well in patients and makes their treatment to radiation uh, reduced from six weeks to one or two visits. That would be fantastic. It's the first proton therapy center to treat cancer in central Ohio, located on the Kenny Road campus of Nationwide Children's Hospital. Comprehensive radiation oncology treatments for both adults and kids at one location. Uh, Dr. Kripe, what do you foresee? How do you foresee uh, this changing lives, improving outcomes, saving lives in the future? Are there any kind of numbers that you've sort of extrapolated or what types of statistics have you found in your research? Well, the numbers are hard to predict. Uh, We think that uh, as more and more patients are treated with this kind of modality, we're going to gather a a lot more data. And uh, as time goes on, we're going to be gathering a lot more data because the main benefit is not just as good or possibly better treatment than conventional therapy, but the main benefit is fewer long-term side effects. So not just the the burning that we talked about of, of quote unquote, of internal organs, but uh, radiation therapy can cause cognitive defects by damaging brain tissue, and it can cause growth, stunting, and uh, most scary is it could cause other cancers. And many of those happen decades later. So we this technology is new enough that we really don't know the data from, you know, 50 years later kinds of data, but we think the evidence is strong that it's going to markedly reduce uh, patients uh, getting another cancer later on that's due to the radiation. Uh, And so that could really save a lot of lives if we can prevent those. So uh, I think, you know, in pediatrics, we have a lot fewer, fortunately, cancer patients than adults. Uh, And so right now the numbers are small. I mean, we've been treating pediatric patients since it opened now uh, every week over there. So um, the numbers are growing, but um, uh, it'll take some time to really gather good statistics. And Dr. Kripe, do you foresee the this type of a proton therapy eventually replacing traditional radiation, or will that still be needed for some cases? I think it'll still be needed for some cases. Uh, for example, uh, in a tumor that's in an area that tends to move, so a tumor in a lung and the lung's breathing, and the tumor actually moves around, you you can't precisely map that tumor geometry because it would move in and out of the field that you would map. So it's better in those cases, uh, in, in some cases like that, perhaps to have conventional radiation. Or it, it may not be needed in the extremities where there's not a, a vital organ next to it uh, and, and the damage done to normal organs isn't, isn't that uh, severe. So there'll, there'll still be some cases where we use conventional therapy. Uh, it's much more complex to use proton therapy. So if it's not going to be really advan- advantageous in a given person, then you might as well continue to use regular conventional radiation therapy in those cases. 
Dr. Timothy Kripe is chief of the Division of Hematology, Oncology, and Bone Marrow Transplantation at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, one of America's largest not-for-profit freestanding pediatric health care systems. Dr. Kripe, we thank you so much for your time today and explaining this seemingly very, very complicated but very advantageous technology that uh, your hospital has added to its lineup. And we look forward to the fantastic outcomes and prognoses that are to come. Me as well. Thank you, Kate. Overcoming drug addiction was difficult, but I found the path to recovery that worked for me. The road to recovery is different for everyone. Find the path that works for you. Learn more at cdc.gov slash stop overdose. This is Columbus Perspective on the fan. Ohio lawmakers are getting back to work in the new year, and there's quite a bit on their schedule, starting with House Bill 68, which deals with gender-affirming health care for minors and transgender athletes on girls' and women's sports teams in Ohio. The governor has vetoed the bill, and the House has voted to override his veto. The bill will become law if that veto is also overridden by state senators when they convene later this month. Now, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, here's Doug Petcash from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. House Bill 68 has two components. The SAFE Act, or Save Adolescents from Experimentation Act, would ban gender-affirming care for transgender children. That includes performing gender reassignment surgery and prescribing cross-sex hormones or puberty-blocking drugs to a minor. The Save Women's Sports Act would block transgender athletes from participating in girls' and women's sports. Governor DeWine vetoed the bill on December 29th. Ultimately, I believe this is about protecting human life. Many parents have told me that their child would not have survived, would be dead today if they had not received the treatment they received. The governor then detailed three rules he wants drafted. One, a rule banning gender-affirming surgery for anyone under the age of 18. Two, a rule to require reporting of this type of medical care to relevant agencies as a way to establish data. And three, a rule to ban pop-up clinics and make sure those who receive this care have access to counseling. Back on December 13th, the state Senate passed House Bill 68 by a vote of 24 to 8 with only one Republican voting no. The House of Representatives passed the bill the same night by a vote of 61-27. It takes a three-fifths vote in the House and Senate to do that. The next Senate session is scheduled for January 24th. Joining me now to discuss the big issues for the legislature in 2024 is Republican State Senator Andrew Brenner of Delaware. He represents District 19, which covers Delaware, Knox, Coshocton, and Holmes County. Senator, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I really do appreciate your time. First of all, does the Senate still have the votes to override the governor's veto? I believe we do. We had an overwhelming amount of votes to uh, pass the bill, uh, and I believe that even if we have a couple members who may disagree uh, and, and agree with the governor on not overriding him, I think we've got enough votes to override the governor on this. Uh, you heard him make the argument that he talked mm-hmm. to a lot of parents who said that their children might not be here today. They might have, you know, died by suicide without that care. Do you think that that argument is, is swaying anyone who did vote yes before? I, you know, I don't know that it is. Uh, I sat through eight hours of testimony, mostly opposition testimony to the bill, and I asked the doctors, where is the scientific evidence that proves that this is reducing suicides and improving depression. 
I have yet to receive that evidence. Um, and I'm, you know, asking for clinical studies that prove what they were doing is effective and working. Yes, there were a lot of passionate people, and I, I've got to say, I felt for everybody who testified in that committee, um, all these kids, all these families. It, it is clearly an emotional thing. It is an, a thing that, you know, you don't, you don't want to wish this on anybody. You don't want to wish that you know, they have to go through this. But I think that the science and everything is there to back up what we're looking to do, which is to override the governor. But what about the, the, the parents who say that this is just you know, taking the decisions out of their hands that, that they and their children and their health care providers are, are making? Well, I would agree that if there were science backing up what they're doing, I would probably be voting differently. However, I have not seen the evidence that backs it up nor have my colleagues who voted for the bill. I believe that uh, an override is appropriate. As we mentioned there at the top of the show, the governor is proposing administrative rules following his veto. Uh, any chance that those could be taken up in the legislature in lieu of a veto override? I don't think so. I think at this point, uh, the Senate is, is, as you pointed out, going to be in on the 24th of January. I believe that's when we would take it up. Um, the governor can proceed with the administrative rules. I sit actually also on the on JCAR that oversees those administrative rules. Uh, many of the rules he's proposing are the exact same things that essentially we were trying to address in the bill. So there wasn't a lot of difference between what he's proposing and, and what was in the bill. He was proposing, of course, prohibiting surgeries of any minor, mm -hmm. but it would allow for the like the hormone therapy and, mm -hmm. and that to continue. So there is kind of a big difference there. there. There is a little bit. However, when you take a look at some of the data that came out of Sweden, which uh, we took a look at, Sweden, which has been doing this for 50 years, uh, just in 2022 reversed their decision for minors on uh, hormone therapy and puberty blockers. So this is a country that has been working with, you know, in the transgender uh, surgeries and all of that for, you know, decades. And uh, they have reversed course. So I think the science is starting to back up, uh, staying away from minors. It, not a problem if you're, you know, over 18 and an adult and you've gone through, uh, you know, various therapies uh, to try to address uh, your, your whatever issues it may be, whether it's depression or other issues. But I, we believe that uh, there just isn't enough data there to back it up for minors. Another big issue before the holiday break, of course, was legislation regarding uh, issue two, legalizing recreational marijuana here in the state. Let's talk about that for a minute. The, uh, the Senate did uh, pass a bill in December that, among other things, would allow medical marijuana dispensaries to sell marijuana immediately. The House put off the issue until this year. Mm -hmm. um, can you give us any insight into how negotiations are going, perhaps, between the two chambers and the two parties on what the House might come forth with? Well, we do know there was uh, one member of the Ohio House, uh, uh, Representative Callender, who uh, supported full legalization. I think he has been leading the charge on the House side of negotiations. Um, you know, uh, President uh, Huffman and, and uh, the rest of our leadership team uh, were proposing something similar to what the Governor DeWine wanted here, which is we weren't going to overturn the will of the voters. We we're going to say, okay, it's mm -hmm. still legal, but we believe that there needed to be some thresholds put in there. We needed to put protections in for kids, protections in for businesses, protections in actually for people who um, may be working and working with you know machinery or things where it could be dangerous if, if somebody's high on marijuana. So we wanted to make sure that those things were taken care of. We also wanted to take a look at where the revenue was uh, coming from on those taxes, yeah. make sure it went to you know helping law enforcement and helping uh, you know 
people who need treatment. So I think those are the things that we passed. Really, we have to wait to see what the House does, and that's going to be up to Speaker Stevens and uh, what his leadership team wants to do. Again, uh, we know that Representative Callender wanted full legalization, and, and the bill that he introduced was quite similar to what was passed in November. Uh, we do believe that there were a lot of things that we needed to change, and I think that you know we will hopefully get something done in the coming uh, next couple of months, um, sooner than later. And that would have to be reconciled, right, if, yes. the, if the House makes its own changes to... Uh, or if, it would, have to go to, bill. Yeah. Yeah, it would have to go to conference committee, most okay. likely. Um, the House uh, also overrode the governor's veto of the bill that would prohibit local governments from banning the sale of uh, flavored tobacco products. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think the Senate will do the same on that? I think there's a chance that the Senate would uh, vote to override the governor on this. And this has to do with business decisions. So if you've got a small business that is selling uh, flavored tobacco in Columbus, as an example, uh, where they've just recently banned it, that business is going to be hurt because, uh, you know, they'll, people will just go to, you know, the surrounding suburbs and other locations, and that's not going to be, that's not good for business. If you're going to make this policy, it probably should be a statewide policy versus a, a hodgepodge local policy. Yeah, why not do everything possible, though, to keep it out of the hands of kids? I, I think that's appropriate, and I would agree with that. The next thing is that, uh, you know, when you look ahead now to 2024, mm -hmm. We've focused on two of those issues a lot heading into the new year. What are you seeing as top priorities for Republicans heading into 2024? Well, obviously, this is a presidential election year, so there's going to be a lot of, of time dealing with that. But I know the Senate, we've been looking at things such as housing and affordability. Uh, that is, a, we've got a special uh, committee that's been reviewing that all over the state of Ohio. When you have property taxes that have gone up, assessed values that have gone up, that impacts, you know, the working class, middle class, and it, it impacts all levels. Uh, it's going to impact school funding. So that's something that I think we're going to take a look at and uh, try to figure out, okay, if property taxes go up significantly, uh, is that going to be something that we as a state need to take a look at to try to equalize it so that you don't have some districts that are causing senior citizens to have to leave their homes? Uh, so I think that is something that we're going to take up as a priority. Uh, we're going to make sure that uh, the Department of Education and Workforce, uh, which has been implemented, uh, that that is continuing uh, to go along the way we want it to go along, which is to improve uh, everything in that department, make sure it's working better for the state of Ohio and all of our schools and students. Uh, so that's a couple things that I think we're going to be working on in the coming weeks and months. And then obviously we're going we're to have to go back and, and deal with probably the marijuana issue uh, at some point with the House. You were one of a handful of state leaders who uh, received swatting calls mm -hmm. over, over the holidays. Um, fake 911 caller saying yep. that there's an incident going on at your address and the police show up kind of in force. How disconcerting is that? Uh, very. Uh, we, we passed the bill uh, a little over a year ago now in a, and the governor signed in the law in the prior end of the prior General Assembly and uh, you know myself and several of my colleagues and obviously the Attorney General were all swatted uh, the day after Christmas. Uh, this was I think retaliation for that bill having been signed into law the year before. Um, I feel like uh, we need to make sure that we have the proper security in place to make sure that this doesn't happen to there as well as schools. I met with some superintendents as well uh, and they're concerned because you know they're getting uh, prank calls on this and it can scare a lot of people especially with the kind of shootings and other things that have happened in other parts of the country. You want to make sure everybody is secure and safe, but you also don't want uh, something where somebody's uh, trying to prank or 
even try to cause chaos, which is what I think they were trying to do in this particular case. So I think we need to make sure that uh, we protect First Amendment rights and, and privacy, but we also need to make sure that the police have the tools that they need in order to go after the people who are breaking the law. Are you reaching out also to like, congressional and U.S. Senate uh, yes, uh, senators my, here? Yes, my uh, congressman happens to be Jim Jordan, so I've reached out to his office, and uh, we're uh, going to be in communication on this to see, because I think this is something that may have to be addressed at the federal level, because, you know, if We've you've got We've seen it people, across the country, it's, yeah. it's all over the country, plus we believe many of the calls are coming in from foreign countries. So that's something that the federal level is going to have to address. Senator Brenner, thank you so much for your time today. I do appreciate your input on all these big issues as we head into this new year. Thank you. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. When you take a walk around your neighborhood and notice all the things that make it feel like home, like all the houses lying neatly together in a row, or your neighbor, Miss Rita, who always waves at you when you drive down the street, or that movie theater in the strip mall that might look a little worn down, but has the best popcorn you've ever tasted. One thing might be a little harder to notice because somewhere tucked in that neat row of houses is hunger. It could be your next door neighbor or your coworker or your daughter's friend from school because over 30 million Americans don't know where their next meal is coming from. Hunger lives in neighborhoods all around us, but it doesn't have to. Together, we can provide a billion meals by 2030 because everyone should be welcome at the table. Learn more at nourishingneighbors.com. Let's break the cycle of hunger together. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Doug Petcash, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome back to Face the State. I'm Doug Petcash. Today we're focusing on the big issues for the state legislature in 2024. We heard from Republican Senator Andrew Brenner. And now I'd like to welcome Senate Minority Leader Nikki Antonio of Lakewood. She also represents District 23, which covers part of Cleveland and Parma. Senator, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate your time. Uh, You came out strongly against House Bill 68 that would ban gender-affirming care for minors and ban transgender athletes from competing in girls' and women's sports. Do you think the governor's veto will be overridden? Well, I hope not. Um, Certainly, many of the things that the governor outlined in his rationale for why he vetoed the bill um, were things that I spoke to on the floor of the Senate in opposition to the bill. And so I strongly believe that the best way forward is to uphold parental rights uh, and also to listen to the medical community. And I actually like what the governor outlined in terms of taking that one step further and saying we really need to look at the policies and procedures, but do that administratively. Um, I think he was spot on. So you're talking about the administrative rules that he's directing agencies to start developing yeah. right now. Um, do you think there's a chance that those could be looked at in lieu of uh, an override vote? I, I know that you know, you're in the minority party here, but that's what Republicans will be considering. Again, that is certainly the conversations I want to have with my colleagues across the aisle, that that consideration should be uh, the alternative to an override of his veto. And um, why do you feel so strongly 
against House Bill 68? Well, look, you know, there was a wonderful um, opinion article, uh, an editorial that just came out in the Cincinnati Enquirer that said... um, Instead of driving people away from Ohio with intolerance, we should actually be welcoming people to Ohio uh, through our example of tolerance and acceptance and welcoming all people. And so I feel very strongly that this this bill just sends such a message to so many people, um, members of the LGBTQ community, but it sends a negative message to business to small businesses, large businesses alike. Do you really want to do business in Ohio? Will you be able to supply the workforce if people of all stripes are not welcome here? Thank you for your answers on that. I want to turn to the other big issue sure. here that, that was you know really dominating uh, heading into the holidays and now continues over into yeah. the new year, and that's the legalized recreational marijuana. The Senate did pass a measure pretty yes. quickly um, after the, uh, the issue two went into effect, waiting on the House uh, to act. Can you give us any insight as to where you know the negotiations might stand between the parties and the, the chambers? Well, I can tell you that there was a lot of discussion and negotiation in the Senate um, with my caucus and members of the majority caucus really centering around my caucus. It was very important to Democrats that we continue to uphold the will of the people. And the people said they wanted home grow. They wanted access to recreational adult use marijuana. Um, In some instances, it talked about being treated like alcohol, so we tried to be consistent. But the most important thing to us that was not in issue two was expungement. Um, And so we were able to include into that piece of legislation automatic expungement for people who have these minor um, infractions of possession that now, because it's legal, would not be there. We also thought it was very important, and we also added to that piece of legislation immediate access so that we don't create... um, that that illicit market, yeah. right, by having access in the places where right now you can get the medical um, to be able to go to a dispensary and also get the recreational. Are there sticking points? Uh, some of the, the lawmakers I've talked to have seemed to be along the lines of the, 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 the taxable rate and then the revenue, how it would be right. dispersed. Is that what you're hearing too. Well, that was one of the discussions we had in the Senate, and certainly I think it's worthy to continue that discussion with our colleagues in the House. I think we want to make sure, again, that we don't encourage an illicit market by getting too high and uh, of a tax base outside of what our neighbors to the north have or any of the other states. And so we were mindful of that when we had the discussion, and I think it needs to continue. The House overrode the governor's veto of the bill that would prohibit local governments from banning the sale of flavored tobacco products. Do you expect the Senate to, to override that issue It's kind as of well? confusing, isn't it? A ban yeah. on a ban to... Yeah. <laughs> um, look, the bottom line is I am a strong proponent of local control, and I think we are a state that um, actually tells our communities... We uphold local control, your ability to make those decisions in your local community the best for you. 
I continue to believe that that is the best way forward. And so um, I believe that the communities need to have Mm -hmm. the ability to ban if they want to. When the Columbus's ban went into effect on the first, we talked to a smoke shop that said they were really going to be hurt by this, that it it could end up putting them out of business. Um, What about them? Well, and that's it. I mean, again, we need in the legislature need to be able to take a look, a 2,000-foot look at what are we doing and how does it affect the economies and business community at the local level as well as throughout the state. This is one of those issues. So what now do you see heading into 2024 as the key issues, the big priorities for the Democrats this year? Well, one of the things that, um, look, everything we're going to be focusing on is looking through the lens of upholding and empowering working families, um, healthy and safe communities. We talked about HB uh, 68 at the beginning. Uh, One of the things that our colleagues talked about was the safety of children, that that was a concern for them. Well, if we're really concerned about the safety of children, uh, we have a suite of bills Mm -hmm. that would also address gun safety. Because right now, children, death of children, the highest level is gun violence. Um, That is the number one cause of death for children in America. So in the state of Ohio, we should be taking a look at that. We should make sure their parents can go to work by providing affordable and safe child care. Mm -hmm. And we should be uh, doing legislation, looking at legislation that really is going to keep them uh, safe in their communities as well. And one of the pieces of the the gun legislation that you rolled out was about safe storage. Yes. Yes. Safe storage. We, We picked things that have already been discussed in a bipartisan fashion in our state and across the country. Safe storage, um, people being able to get a tax benefit to locking up their weapons, things like that, yeah. Leader Antonio, thank you so much for your time today. I hope we can do this again in the future as this uh, second part of the General Assembly continues. Well, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. The state's new distracted driving law appears to be paying off and saving lives. The Ohio State Highway Patrol says it has seen a decrease in distracted driving crashes and deaths since the law kicked in last year. It prohibits drivers from using or holding a phone while driving. Troopers say crashes decreased by 14 percent from 2022 to 23, from 271 to 228. And deaths went down by 20 percent from 35 to 28. The state's distracted driving law officially took effect in April of last year, but enforcement only began in October after a six-month grace period to educate the driving public. OSHP says it's given about 3,500 tickets since enforcement began. Troopers say based on what they've seen, overall messaging of the law is working. During that six-month warning period, what we saw month to month was a decrease in the amount of warnings that officers were issuing or that troopers were issuing to motorists on the roadway, which tells us that the law was Uh, or the educational side of that law was working. We have more detailed information on the fines you face if you violate the state's distracted driving law on 10tv.com. The Ohio Department of Transportation also reminds drivers if you need to use your phone at all while on the road, pull over to a safe location and park your car. Again, that's Doug Petcash, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10TV, from his Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10TV. Parenting is hard. Technology can make it harder. 
The family media plan developed by the American Academy of Pediatrics helps make it easier. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan to create the media plan that's right for your family. Whether you make a full plan or just choose a few parts that matter the most to your family, healthychildren.org forward slash media plan is an easy to use tool that will help your family set media priorities and create healthy digital habits in line with your family's values. You'll also get practical tips to help make the plan work. And you can come back to revise your plan as often as you need to, like at the beginning of each school year or during summer and holiday breaks. Raising kids in the age of screens is easier when you have a plan. Go to healthychildren.org forward slash media plan and make your plan today. You're listening to Columbus Perspective on the fan. Just last month, Ohio unveiled the first federally funded electric vehicle charging station in the country. And in the past week, the Biden administration announced $27.5 million in grants to build 120 more charging stations across the state. The funding is due to the bipartisan infrastructure law. New rules took effect at the start of this year, and they could mean big changes in how you get a discount from buying an EV. Brandon Lewis from our National Verify team explains. On January 1st, there were two big changes to the tax credit given to buyers of electric vehicles, and they're sending a lot of potential EV owners to Google to try and figure out what's going on. So we're going to help you understand the changes using these sources. Eligible EV owners can still get a tax credit of up to $7,500 when they purchase a new EV. On January 1st, the federal government changed how you can get the credit and which cars qualify. Before the changes, EV buyers had to claim the credit on their taxes the following year, meaning a wait of several months to get their discount. Now, you can choose to apply your credit to the price of the car at the dealership. The changes also make it more difficult for new EVs to qualify for a tax credit. To get half the credit, batteries in new cars must be made or assembled in the U.S. For the full credit, they must also be made using minerals that come from the U.S. or select partner countries. The EPA says models that no longer qualify for any tax credit include the Ford Mach-E, the Chevy Blazer EV, and Nissan Leaf. However, the list is fluid as manufacturers work to source parts that could make their cars eligible again. The government is also continuing to offer a credit of up to $4,000 on used EVs. To qualify for either a new or used EV credit, you must still meet income limitations. You can read more about qualifying models and the new rules at verifythis.com. With your Verify, I'm Brandon Lewis. One in four Americans today are living with a disability. I'm one of them. I care deeply about creating a world we can all fully participate in, free from stigma, misperceptions, and barriers. And we've got a trusted ally on our side, an organization we can rely on, Easter Seals. Rooted in communities nationwide, Easter Seals helps empower millions of people, regardless of age or disability, through its life-changing services and powerful advocacy. Today and every day, Easter Seals is leading the way to full equity, inclusion, and access to healthcare, employment, and education for people with disabilities, families, and communities. That's my Easter Seals. Make it yours. Learn more and get involved at EasterSeals.com. The YMCA is just a starting line. 
for the true self blooms only when we find our purpose, what makes us tick below the surface. My why is diversity in unity, a safe space in my community, living with sincerity, giving every day my everything. With my why, I stand strong, seen and supported all along. It's a million faces in a mirror and everyone belongs. Find your why. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. I'm Kate Burdett. Columbus will host the nation's most prestigious figure skating event when the United States Figure Skating Championships come to Nationwide Arena January 22nd through the 28th. Here to tell us more about this event that's been held annually since 1914 is Jesse Giorzi with the Columbus Sports Commission. Hi, Jesse. Thanks so much for being with us. What an exciting few days in Columbus with U.S. figure skating, huh? Yeah, I mean, especially when we've got an event coming to to Columbus, um, you know, it's uh, a great way to kick off what's going to be a massive, massive year uh, of 2024 sports events in in Columbus, both uh, new teams coming here like the Columbus Fury and and major events like this one and like the MLS All-Star Game. So super excited to to kick this uh, event off. Absolutely. For those who may be not as familiar with figure skating world, What is it that's so exciting about this? Because it really is a remarkable achievement for Ohio and and Columbus specifically to have this event here. Yeah, as you mentioned, it's been a it's a long time event been going on for more than 100 years. It's something that that our city and and our team at at the Sports Commission's had our eye on for quite a while, way longer than I've only been here for a couple of years. And we've been um, tracking towards uh, having this event for uh, for several years before that. So um, it's the first competitive figure skating uh, event of a, of a national or a big variety that Columbus has ever hosted. So um, it's something that's it's super exciting. You know, I think every four years at the very least, uh, you've got uh, everybody's tuned into America and, and watching everybody in America is tuned into NBC and and learning about these awesome skater stories and seeing the the athleticism and grace that happens on the ice. Um, and so to bring this here, although we're right in the middle of uh, of the Olympic cycle, um, to bring this this here, I think it's really special. You know, Columbus is obviously a, a great college sports town. We um, we host a lot of major NCAA events, and and uh, the Buckeyes do well in just about every sport that they have, attendance wise, and and on the field of play. So, uh, I think in that same vein, you know, this is the opportunity at the national championships to see uh, athletes at, at that are elite, but also going on to bigger things. Right. Well, on, on Saturdays we watch Buckeye football, and and throughout the winter we watch. Um, Buckeyes hockey and, and basketball and the women's and men's teams playing, um, but they know that they've got the next step in their career at the professional level, but but they're still awesome right now. And the American champions are going to be awesome here. And then in a couple of years, plenty of the people that you see here at Nationwide Arena January 22nd to 28th will be the ones, you know, being interviewed by Bob Costas and Katie Couric and skating uh, to hopefully to Olympic gold in a couple of years. So real special opportunity to, to see a sport um, that's never been to Columbus before. And as we start to hear more and more of the big names and maybe names that are going to become bigger in figure skating that will be on the ice here in Columbus, I understand that this very special local connection is also taking place where a graduate from Columbus College of Art and Design is actually the person who created the costume for last year's figure skating champion that's competing for their second straight title this year. Is that correct? Yeah. And anytime we have a, a big event like this, it's uh, it's an opportunity, obviously, you know, to, to bring people 
um, that have never been to Columbus before, whether that's the, the the athletes, coaches, officials, fans, but also you know those traveling fans that are coming here. But it's also a really great opportunity for um, you know our city to show off and show what it's great at. And Columbus is a is a is a fashion hub, a, a growing fashion hub. And um, so really early on, we were like, what sport goes better with fashion than figure skating, right? It's an individual sport where you get to pick your entire outfit. And although you might be able to do that in golf, you still have a lot more uh, or more limits of what you're able to wear in a sport like golf or tennis. But um, uh, of course, there are rules around uh, attire in figure skating, but I find that it's a lot more expressive uh, on the ice than it can be in, in a lot of other um, sports. And so um, we connected with uh, with the Columbus College of Art and Design. Uh, I have been a terrific partner throughout this. Um, anytime we host a big event like this, we're always leaning on um, great community organizations to help us get people excited about it. And so the task here was let's find a way to to show off um, Columbus's fashion shops uh, at, on the main stage, literally on the ice, um, and so, yeah, Isabel Levito, who I think is 16 or 17 years old, but is the defending champion and a skater on the rise herself, already accomplished, but going on to bigger things, uh, was paired with uh, Austin Tootle, also a designer on the rise, who's already accomplished some things and showed at New York Fashion Week and Columbus Fashion Week, but also headed towards bigger things in the future. Um, so two people that are that are early in their careers, but also going to be doing a, you know, a much bigger deal, um, you know, with each passing day. Um, they connected and worked very closely over the last several months to to design a costume based on Isabeau's um, personality and interests and and the music that she chose for her routine. So it'll be on display, uh, making its debut on the ice during the uh, Prevagen Skating Spectacular on Sunday the 28th at uh, 7.45 p.m. So there's a really neat video and and, uh, and kind of recap of, uh, of the, the process on our blog at columbusports.org. Um, and not just those two working together, but CCAD put this into uh, into practice with uh, with a classroom session, um, and had uh, more than a dozen uh, students, current students, uh, hear what Isabel was into and design their own concepts around it. She's going to be wearing just Austin's physical creation, but uh, it's been really neat to see a real world opportunity um, uh, in the sports landscape get designed. And, and these students had, had a, an awesome time and produced so many cool, cool things, um, of their own variety as they, as they got real world experience, um, designing something for a, a top, top athlete. What an amazing collaboration. And speaking of collaborations, United States figure skating, the greater Columbus sports commission and the Columbus metropolitan library have teamed up to do something pretty special around the figure skating championships, right? Yeah, and again, with the, the the local collaborations are are our bread and butter, and what makes Columbus, I think, uh, is a big difference maker for what makes these events awesome in Columbus, um, and something that, that that absolutely attracts these big events here when we can we when we tell the the events rights holders what awesome things we're able to do with our community. So, yeah, we started talking with um, with the library when we first started bidding on this event, um, like a year and a half ago, and then once it got here, we we ramped up those conversations, and their whole team's been awesome to work with, but. More details are at uh, columbusports.org slash skate about this partnership. But um, at uh, at Main Library all month, there's a celebration of figure skating. So they installed a synthetic ice rink that kids can uh, toss their shoes off and, and slide and glide around in socks. Uh, there's a uh, several skates that we've had hand-painted by a local artist, Gabby Anderson, on display. Um, there's a 1960 um, Olympic gold medal winner, Carol Heiss's dress is on display there. Um, as well as some other memorabilia from the U.S. Figure Skating Archives. 
Um, and then uh, on the actual during championship week, uh, we'll bring two figure skaters turned authors to uh, the main library location um, for uh, appearances. Gracie Gold uh, will be there Friday, January 26th. Um, her memoir, Out of Shape, Worthless Loser. I think there's a hashtag in front of that. <laughs> wow. Comes out in uh, in February. And then Nancy Kerrigan um, has a children's book called Stronger Than She Thinks that I can't think came out uh, in 2022 or 2023. And she'll be reading from that on January 27th. So fun celebration of figure shitting going on at the library uh, all month long um, uh, with uh, the hub at, of it at, uh, at Main Library, but then also some special events um, during the during championship week. Very, very cool stuff going on. Jesse Giorzi is with the Columbus Sports Commission. January 22nd through the 28th, the United States Figure Skating Championships will be held at Nationwide Arena in Columbus. Jesse, what other events surrounding this major sporting activity do we need to know about in the run-up? Yeah, I mean, those are the. There, there's going to be a lot going on. I think a lot of the times when we bring an event uh, to to Columbus from where we're hosting something. Um, you know, it's one game or it's one championship or it's a couple semifinals in a championship, all of which are awesome. Um, but this event is unlike, you know, the those other events that we'll bring in here because it's really a week long. There's going to be competition on the ice at Nationwide Arena Tuesday, January 23rd, all the way through Sunday, January 28th, uh, at least two and sometimes four sessions per day. So there's going to be something going on all the time. Um, and practices and warm ups will be going on uh, at the ice house that's connected to Nationwide Arena. Um, and those will be uh, the, the practice sessions at the ice house will be free and open for the public to, to check out. But that's something that's that's neat that we're excited to be able to do. And um, and truthfully, there's going to be so many opportunities to uh, to catch um, some figure skating at Nationwide Arena. The, uh, yeah, the a quick rule of thumb is that, the you know, each day the competitions get a little bit um, uh, more intense or, or higher level. So we're starting in the, in the Tuesday and Wednesday are going to be the, the junior level skaters. Um, and then once we get into to Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, it's going to be the the senior level. So um, a couple of the biggest events, if you see the schedule and you're overwhelmed and not sure which one to go to, if you're looking to get the the biggest names on ice and uh, and the top folks in the in the country skating, that's going to be um, Friday, January 26th, the the championship women's free skate at 745. Um, and then really any of the Saturday and then the Sunday afternoon ones will have the the championship, which are the senior level um, people that are that are fighting for those spots on Team USA and the free skate or the free dance are going to be the the longer uh, of the sessions compared to the short program. So um, it's going to be awesome. There's the stuff that we're doing with the library. We're cooking up a, a few other things. Um, you know, we'll have some stuff going on on Battel Plaza outside the stadium or outside of the arena on the 27th, um, and a few other special events. All that uh, that information will be at ColumbusSports.org/skate. And that is where to go to get all of the information. As Jesse has shared with us today. There is literally something for everyone, whether you want to go for free to watch a practice session for some of these very elite figure skaters to maybe just get the kids out of the house and over to the library for some sock skating at Columbus Metropolitan's main branch. Jesse Giorzi with the Columbus Sports Commission, we thank you so much for your time today. Very excited about figure skating coming to Columbus and can't wait for them to hit the ice. Yeah, it's really special. And, and uh, I'll be honest, I, I wasn't, uh, you know, I'm not a natively humongous figure skating fan. I, I'm like a lot of Americans and tune in every four years, but having been at the last two championships myself and being able to see it up close, it's it's something really special that you got to see one time. And this being the, the first time it's in Columbus and 
ever. And the first time it's been even in the Midwest since 2019, it's definitely a, a can't miss event. Even if uh, you only get to, to one or two of those 17 sessions, it's a really special time. And we're thrilled to have it in Columbus and looking forward to, to seeing some, some fans out there that are catching it for the first time. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan, heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS AM, that's 1460 ESPN Columbus, and Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS FM, Sports Radio 97.1, The Fan.